Too much information too fast. What is actually worth paying attention to? Metro New York City is our COVID epicenter and what that all means. U.S. hospitals are preparing for the, quote, surge. And what are the newest treatments for COVID-19? Hi, and welcome to the show. Today is March 25th, 2020, and I'm Dr. Michael Zagoda for the Spiro Podcast. A lot of information out there right now. I've been trying to take as much in as I can, but I've started to find that I've needed to come up with just a few sources that I can reliably go to to see where I can get the most effective and usable, actionable information that will help me in taking care of my patients and also with just peace of mind and seeing how the whole COVID or coronavirus situation is playing out. You know, should you listen to, say, mainstream media, news outlets like the Associated Press or Twitter, maybe chat rooms, or how about all the above? As a frontline provider, let me share my personal experience on what I'm seeing, what we are doing, and how things are going. I partially get my information from a basic three-tiered source of sorts. Um, I tried to catch, say, the White House Coronavirus Task Force uh, briefings that happened almost every day. This gives me an overall view on where we are as a country. Based on my experience and the uh, word coming out of my colleagues in the hardest hit parts of the country, such as New York City, the information coming from that daily briefing is actually pretty accurate and meaningful. It also helps me to know what my patients are hearing, and so I can predict kind of what questions are going to be coming along. My second source is from my hospital's clinical communication chain. We get daily briefings based on local occurrences of the disease, the rate of testing, the rate of positives, as well as the available beds in our system, and how our COVID patients are doing across my large integrated healthcare system. Part of this is when the critical care physicians get together over Skype three or four times per week for about an hour or so, just to see where each hospital is individually and what kind of resources are needed to be allocated at each facility. Finally, my last uh, resource is actually the most interesting. I'm on a Telegram chat, so Telegram is an app. I was just recently introduced to this, and there's a chat room in there with more than 200 frontline providers from around the globe. These are the bedside soldiers in the fight against the Wuhan virus. These are the critical care specialists and pulmonologists from China, Korea, Italy, France, Spain, Iran, Brazil, Portugal, the UK, and of course, the United States. Clinicians from Johns Hopkins, Mayo Clinic, Leahy Clinic, University of Southern California, UCLA, University of California, San Francisco, even Massachusetts General Hospital, Wake Forest, Duke, Chapel Hill, and many, many other nationally recognized institutions are freely sharing information on their respective patients, their organizational protocols, and the pathways that they are finding from their own respective colleagues overseas and across the country. So this is just a plethora of information. However, this is not a panacea but it is truly a wealth of information. Sometimes it feels like I'm drinking from a fire hose when I go onto this chat. This chat room has the brightest and most experienced critical care specialists in our country sharing their experiences, methods, and thoughts on other providers' ideas, protocols, and implementation of these ideas and protocols. Our institution has taken the best parts of protocols from, say, Mount Sinai in New York City, or Massachusetts General in Boston, or even Johns Hopkins. We've combined that with our local expertise to have rapid protocols that are quickly vetted and released. Doctors are releasing 
N95 mask solutions using, say, CPAP masks and Ambu bag masks on how to protect yourself using these things when you run out of N95 masks in uh, your hospital. Sometimes things are being shared on how to sterilize current N95 masks with, say, heat or using UV light or just keeping them in a paper bag for a week as the virus seems to only have about a three-day shelf life when not in a biological host. None of this is studied, but based on our best scientific knowledge, this is actually what a lot of us are leaning on. One thing I learned in my training, uh, never ignore a tip from the jockey. So these are the jockeys. These are the people on the horseback. These are the people on the front lines. If they're telling you something works, I bet you it works. If they say it doesn't work, chances are it doesn't work. So my favorite place to go is that chat room. It's organic. It's real. And it's meaningful. Doctors are sharing their struggles, their hurts, their pain, and their predicaments. The stories of doctors coming from home and self-quarantining themselves in their basement, listening to their family upstairs while trying to be with them via FaceTime. They're not even sick. They're just doing it to protect their families just in case they could have been exposed earlier and are now a carrier. Then there are the doctors from Italy and Spain that shared that they were actually infected with COVID and how they are now dealing with the flu-like symptoms of the illness at home as they pray that them or their families don't end up in the ICU like some of their own colleagues. One actually said, quote, it's like watching a fellow soldier go down on a battlefield. At first, you just do everything you can to care for them. But then in the quiet moments, you know that you could be next, end quote. Or there's a story about how a nurse couldn't see through her goggles because she cried just enough from worry that it completely fogged up her mask. Then she stuck herself with a needle because she could barely see. Just heart-wrenching. What I found most interesting is the compassion shown by these doctors that despite their own suffering, they're always talking about how much worse their patients have it. The fear and anxiety of the patient just before they get intubated and put on a ventilator after not having been able to see their family for days because of the lockdown in the intensive care units. One actually said, quote, thank God for FaceTime. This is how our patients communicate with loved ones up until the time that they go on a ventilator, end quote. Also of note, not one single provider has said that they wish they weren't doctors. Every single one that I've had the honor to collaborate with has embraced their calling and press on toward the goal that is to offer hope and healing for all their patients. Some have even taken the time to comb through 1,300 COVID-19 articles and then break them down into several different subcategories. The amount of work that went into this kind of thing is just phenomenal. After they do all that work, they just post it online freely for anybody to go through. Just do anything to help get us through this, get our patients well, and to learn from this so that should we have to deal with this again in the future, We've got the experience, we've got the literature, and now we've got the collaboration and the camaraderie. I could not imagine what it would be like without having the social media opportunities that we have today. Really has been a blessing. The Princess cruise ship was the first, but fortunately, it was a closed system. But once the virus hit the West Coast, many assumed that the state of Washington, the cities of, say, Seattle, San Francisco, and Los Angeles, 
were going to be devastated by the Wuhan virus. Fortunately, our government quickly shut down air travel from China, which obviously mitigated the spread across the West Coast. California has done an incredible job with managing their uh, curve suppression policies. Really outstanding. If you look at the data, you, you can't help but be impressed with what's happened over there. Unfortunately, the East Coast was hit hard, specifically the New York metropolitan area within about 50 miles of Manhattan, New York City. This uh, area currently has over half of our country's COVID-positive population. Just within a 50-mile radius of Manhattan, half of our country COVID-positive patients live there. To date, that means that this area has about 34,000 out of just over 65,000 COVID-positive cases. That means that 31,000 patients are spread out across the rest of the whole country. New York City has the most air travel traffic in the world across at least five airports within the 50 miles of Manhattan, New York. Atlanta International Airport is the busiest airport in the country, but that airport is a hub through which most people have connecting flights, so we're not seeing a ton of COVID cases coming out of Atlanta. We're seeing a sizable number, but not like what they're seeing in New York. Also, Atlanta doesn't have a population density that New York has. Once air travel was prohibited from Europe, the spread across the entire East Coast was stopped, at least hopefully mitigated, but in New York City, that horse was long out of the barn. This makes New York City our epicenter. Just like Wuhan, China, the vast majority of COVID-positive patients were within 100 miles of the wet market from which it all began. At least it was summarized the virus began there in its entry into, say, the human population. Areas outside of Wuhan had a much better outcome overall, especially because they were able to prepare for the wave of sick patients coming and were able to use the lessons learned in Wuhan. So now that we have an established epicenter, our government can focus resources into that area, spread the lessons learned from the experience to the rest of the country, and eventually defeat the virus like they did in Korea. One statistic that I heard today that I found interesting is that in the last eight days, we have done more testing than all of South Korea did in eight weeks. That is hard to get one's mind around. Just eight days ago, we barely had any testing, and now we lead the world in testing. Unbelievable. Let's just take a minute and talk about the kind of testing we are using in the U.S. Currently, it's PCR-based testing. Our PCR testing will show a positive test if only 20 copies of the virus are in a sample with over 90% sensitivity and about 98% specificity. If a couple of thousand copies of the virus are sampled with a good nasopharyngeal swab, the sensitivity approaches 99% and the specificity is still at 98%. It's very hard to get testing that is that sensitive and specific at the same time. I must admit that if those numbers are real, I'm very impressed. Now, for us statistical nerds out there, the positive predictive value and negative predictive value are not known yet. The CDC has not released any numbers, probably because they don't have any numbers. Some institutions have developed their own tests, and some other tests are being done in thousands of labs across the country. It will take two years and multiple graduate students before those numbers are scrubbed and polished. We're about 10 days from most of the country peaking if the social distancing has worked. It will be interesting to see how the numbers change after our country is opened up again around, say, Easter. I'm sure there will be a second wave, but at least we will be much more prepared and have the supplies we need to care for those patients. I'm also hopeful that by this time next year, 
we could have a vaccine. We'll see. U.S. hospitals are now preparing for the, quote, surge. Like I mentioned earlier, I'm on a global chat, and it is interesting to see how different hospitals and communities are preparing. We are expecting a first wave surge in the next seven to 10 days of sick COVID-19 patients. This surge is expected to hit the mid to large size cities that are not, say, New York City, San Francisco, or LA. Cities like Nashville, Memphis, Tennessee, Charlotte, North Carolina, Louisville and Lexington, Kentucky, Cincinnati, Ohio, Austin, Waco, El Paso, and Dallas, Texas, and others are looking to about seven to 10 days we're gonna get hit with our quote surge. This has been predicted by the White House uh, Coronavirus Task Force led by Dr. Fauci. We'll also start to see Phoenix and Chicago um, finally be tested with a spike of their own numbers. We are almost ready for the wave of new COVID patients. As to date, they have been trickling in a little bit. You know, little by little, each day we see a COVID or two patient come in. I've had as many as um, four on my intensive care units. Um, some of my other colleagues have had the same number. So uh, we've been starting to get a little comfortable knowing that, okay, we're not getting too big of a rush of patients. But then on my way home from work, I drove past a church. It was about five miles from my hospital on a Sunday night. This was just last Sunday night. The church parking lot was packed. They completely disregarded the call to postpone public worship services. I do understand why they did so. These are both spiritual reasons, and one could argue that they're also financial reasons. The churches are in a depressed part of town and consist of mostly low-income families. If people are not in the pews, then no giving is collected and the church cannot pay its bills. These churches are barely able to survive on a good day, and missing a week or two of tithes and offerings could bankrupt a church. Nevertheless, I'm going to find out in about 10 days now if that practice will lead to a wave of sick patients coming into my intensive care unit. There are other churches that were continuing to have services as well, all in that same general area. So I suspect that we will be seeing those parishioners in the hospital too. My city finally put the kibosh on that and churches are no longer allowed to have public worship services until mid-April. We are preparing for the worst, but hoping for the best. Finally, we'll talk about some of the treatments that are being used for the management of patients with COVID-19. The standard across most of the country is using a combination of hydroxychloroquine, also called Plaquenil, and azithromycin. We are giving five days of each of these medications. Hydroxychloroquine actually helps the zinc get into cells, and zinc is known to inhibit viral replication. Azithromycin has an atypical bacterial coverage, but it also manifests an anti-inflammatory component. Some providers are adding oral IV zinc doses uh, to also maybe aid in the viral inhibition. There's absolutely no data on this whatsoever. At my institution, we are not using zinc as of yet. However, we are allowing our patient to have high fevers without treatment. Fevers are known to help with oxygen delivery. Fevers inhibit viral replication, they improve white blood cell mar margination, and they also suppress the cytokine release pathways. We have not been treating fevers unless they get above 103.7. There's no data for this at all. It is merely applying what I know about virology, oxygen disassociation physiology, the physics of fluid dynamics, oxygen delivery, and oxygen extraction. These are all things critical care specialists know intimately. Every critical care specialist I shared the strategy with has said, well, that makes sense. 
So when I see a patient at 103.5, I will admit it is really hard not to go ahead and give Tylenol. But I'm hoping that the high fevers will help inhibit the replication of the virus overall and help with the body's healing. When we do give medication for the fevers, we only give acetaminophen, but we're giving higher doses at 1,000 milligrams every six hours as needed, whereas uh, our normal dosing would be like 650 milligrams every four hours as needed. We've seen that when we only give 650 milligrams, it really doesn't bring down the fever very much, and it really doesn't last very long, maybe uh, an hour or so at the most. The 1,000 milligram dosing does seem to work better. Another treatment for COVID-19 is a study drug called remdesivir. We talked about this in our last podcast. It has been used in Ebola patients and previous SARS and MERS patients with some success. It is a nucleotide analog that stops viral replication by replacing a real nucleotide with a fake one, and that makes any replicated viruses not viable. So far, it has saved lives, but it is not yet available for widespread use. Fortunately, it has been removed from uh, compassionate use protocols, which is actually a good thing. When my colleagues first read this, they were like, oh my goodness, we're not going to have access to this. But instead, it now becomes more readily available and the paperwork needed to for compassionate use is like five times more than it is for an accelerated release, which is exactly what's occurring. The last treatment I'm going to mention today is something called tocilizumab. It's also called Ectemra. This medicine's been around for a long time, also mentioned in my last podcast. It is an interleukin-6 inhibitor. Interleukin-6 appears to be the main culprit of the cytokine storm seen in our COVID-19 patients. In China, they're using it in all patients with lung disease, or lung injury, I should say, and high interleukin-6 levels with very promising successes, at least from what they've said so far. Now, in previous podcasts I've talked about, we need to question everything that comes out of China, especially their medical literature. They have redacted so many things in the past. But we have to take this at face value because now we're starting to see our colleagues in Italy use this as well. Some in um, France and others in Spain have also started to use this. Know this. There are the world's best and brightest minds working on vaccines, treatments, and medical strategies to defeat this virus. I'm not sure exactly what to trust coming out of China, but I do trust these people that I've been interacting with and reading about and seeing these articles come out that shows that they're really putting heart, mind, and soul into trying to defeat this. I believe in the joint collaboration between the medical community and pharma to solve this. It's going to work. We're going to get through this, and we're going to come out of it better for it. Let me take a break for a second and talk about uh, some things that we know don't work very well. Please avoid ibuprofen. Taking ibuprofen makes things worse for COVID patients. If you're not in the medical field and you're listening to this podcast, if you get a fever, do not try to use ibuprofen to fix it. Because if you have COVID, it will likely make it worse. Not a ton of data out there on this, but there's enough to make us take pause, especially when you have plenty of Tylenol around. Use that. Also, you need to avoid steroids. This prolongs valve shedding, it also inhibits healing, and prolongs the ARDS component of the process. Also, we talked about before using antiretroviral drugs, but these do not seem to be carrying the promise once hoped for. Some places are still using it. My hospital is not. Lastly, nitric oxide is also being looked at under trial use only. Of course, it's available for use in ARDS, 
but there are three trials ongoing right now that are looking at COVID-specific ARDS to see if there is any difference from, say, previous ARDS responses to nitric oxide and maybe a COVID ARDS response. Be interesting to see how that plays out. Now it's time for something I like and something I don't like. I like the book entitled Deep Work by Cal Newport. Deep work is the ability to focus without distraction on a cognitively demanding task. It's a skill that allows you to quickly master complicated information and produce better results in, say, less time. Deep work will make you better at what you do and provide the sense of true fulfillment that comes from craftsmanship. In short, deep work is like a superpower, at least in our increasingly competitive 21st century economy. And yet, most people have lost the ability to go deep spending their days instead of in a frantic blur of emails and social media, not even realizing that there might be a better way. In Deep Work, author and professor Cal Newport flips the narrative on impact in a connected age. Instead of arguing distraction is bad, he instead celebrates the power of its opposite. Dividing this book into two parts, he first makes the case uh, that in almost any profession, Cultivating a deep work ethic will produce massive benefits. He then presents a very rigorous training regimen presented as a series of four, quote, rules for transforming your mind and habits to support this skill. This will take some time. A mix of cultural criticism and actionable advice, deep work takes the reader on a journey through memorable stories. From Cal Jung building a stone tower in the woods to focus his mind to a social media pioneer, buying a round-trip business class ticket to Tokyo just to write a book free from distraction in the air. No-nonsense advice is given, such as the claim that most serious professionals should quit social media and that you should practice being bored. It's okay to be bored. Deep work is an indispensable guide to anyone seeking focused success in, say, a distracted world. So if you're stuck at home, quarantined, you have some time to do some, quote, real deep work and have something great come out of this depressing time. Get the book. I think you'll like it. Now, something I don't like. I don't like idiot millennials and Gen Z trying to kill an entire generation. What are you talking about, Dr. Zagoda? Well, my wife found this video on Twitter where college-age students were showing their disdain for the coronavirus by daring each other to get the virus. They were calling it the Corona Challenge, where people would take selfie videos of themselves licking public toilet seats. I've not done this before, but I'm going to play the audio from a CDS news segment from March 15th. Check this out. If I get Corona, I get Corona. At the end of the day, I'm not going to let it stop me from partying. You know, I've been waiting. We've been waiting for Miami spring break for a while. About two months we've had this trip planned. Two, three months. So we're just out here having a good time. Whatever happens, happens. Like, it's really messing up with my spring break. What is there to do here other than go to the bars or the beach and they're closing all of it? It's really messing up. I think they're blowing it way out of proportion. I think it's doing way too much. doing us bad. We need a refund. This virus ain't that serious. It's, serious. it's more serious things out there like hunger and poverty and we need to address yes, that yeah i mean we planned this a long time ago and it was kind of up in the air if we still go but like we're here i just turned 21 this year so i'm here to party so it's kind of disappointing but we're just making the most of it we met these other people in our little airbnb spot 
so we're just hanging out with them and trying to get drunk before everything closes. <laughs> I mean, it sucks, but we're gonna make the best we're of it. Enjoying we're enjoying ourselves. It sucks, and I'm from New Orleans, so this really sucks. However, we're gonna enjoy ourselves. We having day parties all day. It's my birthday, St. Patrick's Day. Turn up. We're just trying to roll with the boy. We're just living for the moment. We're just going for. We're just gonna do what happens when it happens. When stuff closes, we're gonna do it when it closes. But uh, uh, besides that, we're just trying to have the best trip we can. We're oh. These young people are going to go home this weekend and infect who knows how many people. Of course, this is happening in Florida, where a substantial portion of the population is in the highest risk bracket for death from the coronavirus. When I see things like that, I have to admit that it makes me take pause and ask, why am I willing to put myself and my family at risk for these people? After seeing these videos, I'm reminded of something one of my college professors once said. I got my degree in microbiology and virology, and in my class on virulence and epidemics, my professor once said, the only thing more infectious than a virus is stupidity. I want to end today's podcast on a positive note. So let me leave you with a song. Perfect for the time you are stuck at home. Songs entitled Postcard to the World by Mason Zagoda. From Marshall Media, this is the Spiral Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked what you've heard, it would be great if you'd give us a five-star rating as it helps us move up the charts. Oh yeah, and tell your friends how to subscribe too. Until next time. Lay on the floor and practice French. me means I got no friends, but the voice on the tape seems nice, so I make conversation.